As we mark Martin Luther King Day celebrations this weekend with the unveiling of the new statue on the Boston Common, I've been wondering, how can we resist systemic, social, political, and economic injustice and not burn out when things seemingly don't change, don't change fast enough, or even get worse? After all, the roots of inequality and injustice reach all the way back to the very founding of the American colonies, both in the southern and in the northern hemispheres. Our modern American states were built upon the appropriation of native lands, the genocide of first peoples, the enslavement of Africans, and the exploitation of the labor class. Despite all the national gnashing of teeth over critical race theory, historical facts are just facts. And until we come to grips with our past, it's nearly impossible to move forward. While things may look different now than they did, say, 200 years ago, still, Native Americans and the descendants of slave enslaved Africans live on the margins of contemporary U.S. society. The past is always with us, sometimes hidden, sometimes in plain view, but always continuing to shape our society. Today, we sit in this beautiful house of worship bathed in the multicolored light shining through Tiffany stained glass windows. How fortunate for us. But did you know that the adornment of our house of worship was partially funded on the backs of enslaved Africans who worked on the sugar plantations of Cuba? Here we sit today, gathered under the name of Elijah Atkins, 1813 to 1888, a member of a wealthy family involved in the sugar trade and eventually the owner of vast slave plantations in Cuba. An apologist might say, well, he was just a man of his time. But a closer look at our history shows that the Atkins family of Belmont in Boston continued to operate their land holdings in Cuba as slave plantations until 1886, when slavery was finally abolished in Cuba. More than 20 years after slavery was abolished here in the United States. And for years, the Atkins family continued to operate their plantations, exploiting the formerly enslaved. By 1887, their largest plantation, Soledad, was producing 4,000 tons of sugar per year. And here we sit today. History continues to inform and form us. In Massachusetts, the wealth gap, the gap between the haves and the have-nots, is unfathomably high. 
as of November 4, 2022, the median net worth of black families in Massachusetts was $8. Yes, $8. And that of their white counterparts was $247,500. In other words, when black families add up the value of all their assets and then subtract what they owe, they have just about enough for a McDonald's Happy Meal, while their white counterparts have almost a quarter of a million dollars. The inequality is staggering here, today, in Massachusetts. So what can we do to change this? How do we move this towering mountain that we call the United States of America, this mountain created out of centuries of self-perpetuating inequality without being crushed under its weight and ground down into dust. While puzzling over this question in light of our, the our theme this winter, resistance, images of inequality and injustice rose up in my mind. The murder of George Floyd, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the January 6th insurrection. How was it possible that so much had happened in such a short period of time? It seemed like liberal progressive causes, even the very structural underpinnings of our democracy, were under assault. Seeking some bit of hope or a metaphorical life preserver, my mind settled on the opposite of resistance, acceptance. I wondered at the seeming tension between these two concepts. On the one hand, we are called to resist injustice, while on the other hand, we are called to practice acceptance as a way to achieve inner peace and serenity. In Buddhist terms, this relates to our ability to remain present in the here and now. What sort of Jedi mind trick, I asked myself, could allow us to resist, to fight the good fight, and somehow, at the same time, remain present and practice acceptance? Especially when things don't seem to get better or get dramatically worse. So I first resorted to logic. It's an easy place for me to go. Reasoning that simultaneously to embrace resistance and acceptance, we have to be mindful not to confuse our terms. For example, we're called to resist attempts to restrict voting rights. To that end, we engage in actions, such as organizing and voting, which are often not as successful as we would hope them to be. And finally, we are called to accept a truth. In the words of Reverend Theodore Parker and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, that truth is the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. As long as we don't confuse the disappointing results of our good efforts, 
with that which we are called to accept, we stand a chance of not being ground down into dust. We can move forward into action. Accepting the results of our actions may be uneven, that it may take years to move this mountain just a fraction of an inch. I'm thinking now of the butterfly effect. You know it. It holds that the flapping wings of a butterfly can subtly cause ripples in the air and then the water, causing dramatic changes in weather patterns down the line. Here, at First Church in Belmont, how might we engage with our past, acknowledging that we are the beneficiaries of a troubling history of white privilege and structural racism? What might we be called to accept? What might we envision to do to redress this fact? How might we experience serenity while inhabiting that liminal space between resistance and acceptance? And what changes for the better in the larger world might we set in motion? While having clarity on what we are resisting and what we are being called to accept is helpful, even necessary, it's not sufficient. For we humans are only partially logical. At some point, logic fails. It always does. We find ourselves trapped in some dystopian, dysfunctional, long day's journey into night, unable to figure out whether we should zig or zag. The Trump presidency was like that for many. When we are stuck somewhere in that nowhere land between resistance and acceptance, flailing about, uncertain of what is actually even happening, uncertain how to fight the good fight, uncertain how to move that mountain, where can we turn? When logic fails and confusion reigns, we can make a turn to the philosophical. Writing in the first century CE, Stoic philosopher Epictetus dispensed philosophical advice to help people come to terms when life was going sideways. Epictetus advises us, do not seek to have events happen as you want them to, but instead want them to happen as they do happen, and your life will go well. To be clear, Epictetus is not claiming that if we simply adopt this attitude of wanting things to happen as they do, that somehow, magically, things in the world will just start turning out the way we want them to do. No, that's not what he's saying at all. Rather, he's arguing that the best possible human condition, where we stand the best chance of achieving serenity, is not determined by the outcome of specific worldly events, but rather by adopting this state of mind. Do not seek to have events happen as you want them to, 
but instead want them to happen as they do. There is, in the adoption of this attitude, a surrender of sorts. A realization that the results of our good actions are not within our control. Realizing this, we can take a deep breath. We can reassess the situation. We can figure out what's the next right thing to do and then move back into action. So what would it look like here at First Church if we were to fully engage with our past guided by a stoic outlook? What are we to make of the Atkins family and their connection to First Church? Could we check our desired outcomes at the door and live into the question as a community? Wanting things to turn out as they do and not as we might otherwise have wanted them to? What might we discover about ourselves as individuals and as a spiritual community as a whole? The answer can only be found in learning our history and having that very conversation. As a wise life coach once said to me, the conversation is the relationship. So if you're interested in learning more, join John Howe in the First Church Belmont History Group on February 12th as they explore this history. The details are in your order of service. Now, adopting a stoic attitude in the field of social justice requires a lot of effort. And sometimes I feel overwhelmed. Do you? Sometimes I feel overwhelmed that my efforts and their outcomes are so feeble compared to the forces at play in the world. When logic and philosophy fail, when ego gets in the way, sometimes we just have to, okay, get ready for my sports ball analogy here. Are you ready? Okay, sometimes, like Pittsburgh quarterback Terry Bradshaw 50 years ago, we just have to look down the long field of play and throw a Hail Mary pass hoping somehow that Franco Harris is inexplicably going to catch the ball, resulting in the immaculate reception and score the winning touchdown. Score! Even when we don't understand how or why, we can always take the attitude that the ball is still in play and we can move it forward. And how do we do that? We pray. God... Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So wrote American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr in 1933. His famous serenity prayer can help us whenever we find ourselves trapped somewhere between resistance and acceptance. When we rightly employ logic and philosophy to help us navigate this space, we make appeal to disciplines of human knowledge. 
But when we reach out to God, to a higher power, to the universe, or to whatever we conceive of being larger than ourselves, we transcend the human plane, stretching out and reaching up towards the spiritual. We surrender. We place ourselves in the hands of something that is greater than ourselves, relying on faith, on the belief that something better is possible, even when the evidence of scant is scant. We move into action. My prayer life is not particularly well developed. In fact, the serenity prayer is my go-to in most all circumstances. Orthodox church fathers would call it an arrow prayer, one that is deliberately short, easy to memorize, and demonstrate sincerity in asking for help. These prayers are shot up like arrows into the sky asking for help. The more directly injustice and inequality touch us, the more likely logic and philosophy are to fail us. When this happens, we turn to faith. And so we come back to the Atkins family and our relationship with generations of enslaved Africans toiling in the fields of Cuba to a history of privilege built upon mountains of sugar. Elijah Atkins, what are we to make of your gifts? As a community of faith, what do we feel called to resist? What actions do we feel called to undertake? What do we want to happen? Can we come to want things to happen as they do and not how as we might have wanted them to? What might we be called to accept? Like wings of a butterfly, what might we set in motion for better in a larger world? Beloved spiritual companions, I don't know the answer to these questions. I don't exactly know how to live in this liminal space between resistance and acceptance. But I suspect that together we can discover the answer by taking a deep breath, by making a leap of faith, and by beginning a conversation. After all, the conversation is the relationship. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. May it be so. Blessed be. Amen.